you take a seat and uh, grab a Bible, which is hopefully somewhere nearby, start turning to page 1129. We're in Romans chapter 2, and Prince is going to read, and then Andrew will speak. Our reading today is taken from the book of Romans chapter 2, from verse 1 to 16. It can be found on page 1129 of the Church Bible. Romans chapter 2, from 1 to 16. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For, For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So, you, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and on your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God's judgment, when, sorry, when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Good morning, everyone. That was your little wake-up call. Right, well, this passage we're looking at this morning is a defense of God's judgment. And I think if we're honest... We'd all say as believers here in the 21st century that this is a subject that we tend to shy away from. It's perhaps the most unpalatable bit or aspect of what we stand for as Christians. And it's certainly perhaps the bit that our culture finds most distasteful in terms of how they perceive us. It's the big turnoff, those judgmental Christians. And there's some truth in what they say in terms of our message, the gospel, which starts as a message of judgment. So the good news begins with the verdict, you're a sinner and you need rescuing, as if the sinner is drowning. And and of course, the sinner 
who's drowning, so-called sinner drowning, looks back with, at us in some amusement and says, no, I, I'm not drowning, I'm, I'm actually swimming, and I'm having fun, so, so why are you telling me I'm drowning? I don't get your judgment. Um, so they have no sense at all of, of the need of rescue. So our message of you need rescuing seems very judgmental to them, to turn off. Then, of course, there's the, the judgments on moral issues that evangelicals have become well-known for in our present cultural climate, issues around sexual preference and gender and the rights and freedoms that go with them. And the world outside hears us talking about things. They say they're so judgmental. I have friends who talk about these things in the media and I think they, they do it with great compassion. But every time I hear them or see them, I think, ah, oh, as, as correct as what they say, it comes across as so ugly in the present cultural climate. So, so we have this sort of sense that we're the judgmental ones and we become rather shy of the subject. In fact, it's such a turnoff that I think most of us just back away from it. We try to take it out of the package. And the push now is just to show the world that we're good and nice people. And, and we try to remove the message of judgment. And so I think in the face of this cultural backdrop, it's, it's important that we are clear-minded about the subject of judgment. I think it needs rehabilitating in terms of our understanding of it, so we're secure about this part of the message. And it's here that I think that Romans 2 can really help us. So rather than being apologetic for judgment... I'm sorry about this side of the message. Here in this passage, we have a true apologetic for judgment. Apologetic as a defense. That's what the word used to mean. Not to apologize for something, but to defend something. To give a reason for why it should be accepted. So here's a passage that makes sense of judgment. So I think that's important for us today. Now, that the, fact, the fact that Paul is making a defense of judgment highlights that it was the same for the culture he was dealing with. There was an objection to the judgment of God. The Gentiles he is addressing have a problem with judgment. And I think he's dealing with two objections that lie behind this text. The first objection is, who does God think he is to judge me? Paul has begun his explanation of what the gospel is in verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. That's a statement of judgment. So that raises the question, by what right can God judge me as being wicked? The second objection he's dealing with is this. If God did have the right to judge me, how would I possibly know if I stepped over the line? Here's a God I cannot see. I've never heard him speak. And unlike my parents who just laid it down, lights off, 1030, no questions, I've never heard anything like that from God. So how could I possibly know what his standard is? what many people in our culture could rightly say, those who are unchurched. How do I know his standards? So Paul's actually working out here the ex an explanation for what he stated in verse 32 of chapter 1. Although they, Gentiles, knew God's righteous decree. They really do know it. So he's anticipating the reader, the listener, is going to push back and say, how do I know it? It's like a policeman 
or a policewoman who pulls you aside and arrests you for wearing a blue shirt. Well, I didn't know it was wrong to wear a blue shirt. Is it in your law? In the confusion, how did I know that I was stepping across the line? Now, Paul makes his defense of God's judgment here by setting up a contrast. It's so clever. The contrast he sets up is between human judgment and the judgment of God. That's what he's talking about here. It's the outline of his argument. Human judgment, then the judgment of God. So firstly, what this passage has to say to us about human judgment. And the first thing, Paul, first, first point Paul stresses is that every human person is a judge. Verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. It's brilliant. Because those outside the church might be saying internally, who is God to judge me? Who does he think he is? And you think about that statement for a moment, and you see, actually, that itself is a judgment. That's a judgment on God. Who does he think he is? And that's where Paul takes his argument. He stresses that every single person without fail functions as a judge. It's true of you and I too. It's not not that hard to validate. All of us are passing judgment constantly without being able to help ourselves. We put everyone and everything in the dock and we deliver our verdict on it. Sometimes our verdict is verbalized, comes out loud, but more often it's silent. And that's what Paul is getting to in verse 16, where he says God can actually judge people's secret thoughts. They're secret judgments. So most of our verdicts are are silent. So someone invites you over for a meal, and you eat the meal, and I promise you judge it. You give your verdict on it. The verdict is either yum, yum, or mm-mm, or ugh. Yuck. And if you're good in English, of course, you say, that was so lovely. (laughs) Even while internally you said, that person needs new cookbooks. Let's get them some for Christmas. Every time someone tells you a joke, every single time you judge that joke. How? If you approve of the joke, spontaneously you laugh out loud. L-O-L. Right? If you disapprove of the joke, because you don't get it. That's my problem most of the time. I just don't get it. Or it's just not a very good joke. You don't laugh. Or if you're lovely in English, you do laugh, but it's polite laughter. <laughs> you can't help but judge a joke. It's a little bit intimidating for me. Every single one of you are going to judge this sermon. You're going to give your verdict on it. You can't help it. Now, if the flow of your thought life was played back in a recording, what's going on just under the surface, you would be shocked at how much judgment you're passing. You're doing it all the time. And most of it's hidden even from you. I once had the experience. I was in a public space. It was actually a church. And suddenly I could see, it's a very unusual experience this, I could see what I'd been thinking over the past few minutes, my unconscious, subconscious thoughts, and I was utterly shocked and horrified. They were so ugly. We all do it. So and so over there, if only she could control her kids. 
That person over there, they wear the same ridiculous outfit every Sunday. Put on something new. And so and so, so bubbly and happy, but fake, I think. Fake. We're doing that kind of thing all the time. We're passing judgment. We make good judgments too. Not only bad, but we make judgments. And our judgments, Paul says, reveal a lot about us. We should pay attention to our judgments. That's what he's saying in verse 15. They reveal something about us. They show something about us. Now, this fact that all of us are judges extends to God himself. As C.S. Lewis reminded us, God is in the dock. Because everyone is a judge, we can't help make our verdict about God. There was a famous case a few years ago of God in the dock through the eyes of Stephen Fry. You remember the Stephen Fry rant? He was publicly asked in an interview, what would you say, Stephen, to God if you met him? What verdict would you render on God? Fry's reply, I'd say to him, you're an evil, capricious, and monstrous maniac. And it got worse from there. That was his judgment. Now, in a much nicer way, I think most people actually feel that they today are better than God. They have a higher moral standard than God because they don't judge all kinds of things that our culture doesn't judge anymore, that have become acceptable. So God actually has been made out to be the monster. And actually, as believers, I don't think we should be naive about this. I have a friend here in Cambridge, not a believer, an atheist. We get on very well. One time over a beer, he said, Andrew, tell me your gospel. So I did, sort of quite matter-of-factly. God exists. He created everything. He came down to earth in the form of a human being, died, rose again, and by means of that work, we're saved. There's forgiveness. He said, wow, Andrew, let me tell you my gospel. If your God came down to earth in the form of a human being and came to me, it would go like this. If your God got on his knees and apologized long and hard enough for all the evil he brought into the world, all the genocide, all the natural disasters, all the birth defects he went on and on, if he apologized long enough and hard enough for all that evil, I may forgive him. It sounded shocking at the time, but I thought, no, that's, that's kind of the gospel narrative where many people are today. So here's where Paul's defense of judgment comes in. We're all a judge, and we need to hang on to that point. Today, we're often pushed into the category of being the judgmental ones. But we can push back a little bit and say, you know, we're all judges. And I would assert that our age has become extreme in its judging tendencies. The news in the last three weeks, woo, wow. Rightly condemning sexual harassment, inexcusable. But within a culture that, that has made sex a billion-pound in, industry? Wow. Lots of inconsistencies. A few years ago, my son Calvin was doing his teacher training. Part of the teacher training was to learn how to make your classroom a judgment-free zone. Anything goes in the classroom. Don't judge it. So a special seminar, and this woman who was leading the seminar 
every few seconds took a swipe at Christianity. It just became the butt of her ridicule, of her humor in let's create judgment-free zones. So my son, who's a bit of a rebel, let it go for a while. Then he put up his hand, packed lecture theater, and he said, I just want some clarity here. Love what you're telling me. Yes, judgment-free zones. I'm just trying to pick up, though, does does that apply to everyone and everything except Christianity? And, And she blushed, mumbled a little bit, and then carried on, but totally inconsistent. So we live in a culture that also judges. We're all judges. Second point Paul makes here that no one can live up to their moral judgment. Verse 1 again, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Why? Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Paul's showing us here that every verdict we render on another person sets a standard, a moral standard. And because we're the ones who create the standard, we have an obligation to live up to it. It's perfectly reasonable. So you look at a mother lashing out at her children and you judge her, that mother is way too harsh with her children. Now in rendering that verdict, you set up a moral standard for you to live by, which is treat your own children with gentleness. Or you're in a conversation with someone and they're telling you a story of what happened the other day and you know and you make the verdict, this person's exaggerating. I don't believe all of it. So you've just set up the moral standard you have to now live by. Never use your words to misrepresent the truth. Now the point Paul's making is that no one ever lives up to the standard of their own verdict on others. We all fall short of our own moral standard. We never live up to it. We're not always gentle with our children. And when we use words, we often use them to misrepresent the truth. And the same is true of thousands of verdicts that we render on other people. We simply don't live up to them. And Paul's saying that leaves us without excuse. That condemns us. God's not even in the picture yet at one level. Your own judgments condemn you because you can't live up to them. Because our verdicts are not fair. They're not just. They're not consistent with how we behave. So there's human judgment. We all judge and we fail to live up to our judgments. What does the passage say about God's judgment? Well, Paul here goes on to make a series of affirmations about the judgment of God. The first thing he says is this. God's judgment is based on truth. Verse 2. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. It's a way of saying that when, God's judge, when God judges, his verdict lines up with how things really are. It's consistent to reality, unlike the inconsistency of our judgments. So something that is true matches the real world. And that makes it reasonable. So to say God's judgment is based on truth means it's perfectly consistent His judgment as a verdict on our lives matches the reality of who we really are and how we really act out, even in our secret life. And that's what Paul reminds us later on in the chapter of. 
that God knows reality, including our internal worlds, the place of our secrets. He can even judge to that level the reality of what's going on. We can hide what's going on internally. It's not hidden from God. It's based on truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. We actually often judge others by their motives, by what we think is driving them internally. So-and-so has a psychological disposition to this. We make our judgments. So often those judgments of a person's internal life are way off. Because we can't see into another world, the internal world of others. God can. God's judgment based on truth. Secondly, God's judgment is based on what we actually do. Listen to his line of arguing in verse 6 through to 10. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality. That's a very other-centered vision. To the center of reality, God. Those who seek that, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. When God judges a human person, it's on the basis of what they have done how they've acted out. And verses 7 and 8 reflect that there is a clear moral framework between the good and the evil. The good centered in a vision of God, His glory. The bad centered in a vision of the self at the center of everything and all that flows from that. So there's a standard of good and evil and He judges us clearly by that standard. Now, there's an important point to pick up here, and it actually weaves all the way through this letter. Paul's largely addressing Gentiles, and Gentiles would rightly have a reason to be suspicious of God's judgment. Why? Well, surely the God of Israel will always side with his people when it comes to judgment, because he's on board with them, or they're on board with him. So how could he be fair to us in his judgment? Surely that's how power works and how power often is abused. You go with your side. And Paul's saying here, especially verses 9 and 10, God's judgment is true for both the Jew and the Gentile. It's the same for both. He is going to judge Jews too. His own people will come under his judgment. And that's a very important point to grasp because we live in a culture which is becoming increasingly polarized into groups. It's called identitarian politics. Your personal identity becomes bound up in the group that has a particular political ideological view. And those who are not in your group, you judge across the divide. The language, the rhetoric gets more and more hostile. The mudslinging. And we're not judging in identitarian politics and what people are actually doing. It's simply because you belong to that group. It's very dangerous. That's not God's judgment. He doesn't judge us according to the group we belong to. He judges us strictly on what we do. Third thing he mentions here is that God's judgment is entirely fair. Look at verse 11. Simple statement, God does not show favoritism. 
which is a way of saying his judgment is entirely fair. This divine judgment we're suspicious of. What right does he have to do? What about the standards? Well, because it's based on truth, the reality of the situation, because it's rendered by what we actually do rather than the group we belong to, it's a good and fair judgment. And that judgment may not flatter us, but it's just. And this is God's right to judge people. Unlike ours, which are not just, we can't live up, this is just. Now, all this still leaves the objection that I raised earlier. If God does have the right to judge me, how would I know if I stepped over the line? How would I know that? Well, here we come to the fourth point on God's judgment, and it's this. God's judgment is based on norms that everyone knows. So important, this point. God's judgment is based on norms that everyone knows. Paul's picking up on what he said in verse 32 of chapter 1. Although they knew his norms, they broke them anyhow. Verse 12. This is his answer, really, to that that question. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. What's his point? Briefly, Jews are under the law of God. They're people of the Torah. So for them, God's norms have been clearly spelled out. How do they know if they've stepped across the line? Torah. They're the people of this book. They have no excuse. The much more complex question is the Gentiles, those who are not under the law, those who sin apart from the law. To some degree, that would include us. How could we possibly know the standard that God will judge us by? Well, in verse 15, Paul says that they have the law written on their hearts. And he qualifies this by saying that they have a conscience. Now, the conscience is a rather complex thing to talk about. Moral philosophers wrestle with it. But at a simple level, it's simply our moral capacity. God has wired into every human person a moral capacity, and that moral capacity makes us moral beings. Francis Schaeffer said, we have moral motions. Can't help it because we have a conscience. So in that sense, we are a law to ourselves. And this comes back to the fact that we are judges and we're constantly making verdicts which establish a morality, a law for ourselves. So all of us are moral beings because God has written something internally into us, a conscience which creates a standard. And it is our consciences, he says here, that makes us defend ourselves. That's what I love about humans. We stand up against injustice. Every family with a cluster of kids will have one who has the most sensitive justice meter. Boom! If it's unfair, bam! Off they go. But there's nothing more terrible than being treated to injustice. Being accused of something in your office or the child in the family of doing something you didn't do. 
It's our conscience which says, no, it's unfair, that's unjust. And it violates us greatly. And then we go into defense. But of course, our consciences also accuse us, Paul says. This internal moral capacity terrorizes us. We're ridden with guilt and shame and voices of condemnation standing on our shoulder all the time. Now, Paul's point is that this internal wiring is tied in some way to the divine standard. And because of that, we are without excuse. Again, coming back to his earlier argument, if we can't stand up to the standard of our own judgment and verdicts and others, how are we going to stand up to his? So this passage is, is bad news. Other preachers here, probably John and Steve, got all the good passages. There's my verdict on them. Give me the hard one. It's a hard passage, and it's saying we're in a deep quandary. We're in trouble. Merely on the basis of being judges, how deeply we fail our own standards. We are without excuse. But as I finish, I want you to see that there's hope in this passage. Because amidst all the judgment talk in verse 4, Paul introduces us to the theme of God's kindness. Listen to these comforting words. Do you think, he says, you will escape God's judgment, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, I love this. In this strong defense of God's judgment, he brings in kindness. Twice in this passage, Paul refers to the day. It's meant to scare us. The day of wrath, verse 5. The day of judgment, verse 16. That the day is in the future. It hasn't happened yet. God could enact justice on us now, rightly, justly, but on the basis of his kindness, he defers the judgment, the day of wrath. He doesn't enact it now. And that is his extraordinary kindness at work. His kindness, as Paul draws it out here, is in being patient, deferring, giving us time. And we ask time for what? Well, it's time for the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to be the dominant word, to be the louder word than the word of judgment, which Paul will get to later in the, in the, in the letter. The good judgment of God has actually been rendered on Jesus Christ. Jesus the Son has borne the judgment. He's taken it. And that means there's nothing to fear when you face the judgment of God. All you have to do is receive the gift. That's the good news. So judgment, but this remarkable kindness in his patience, deferring it so the good news can get through and bring us free from condemnation. Something all of us long for, I would say, and something on offer to all of us this morning. Let's take a few moments to consider this together.